Welcome. This is the Way Home Podcast. A podcast built around conversations on church, community, and culture. And now, here's Dan Darling. Well, welcome to the third edition of the Way Home Podcast. This is Dan Darling. Glad to have you with me today. Uh, We've got an exciting lineup for you today of two really good guests. My first guest is uh, Joe Rigney, who teaches at Bethlehem uh, College and Seminary in Minneapolis and has written an excellent new book called The Things of Earth, Treasuring God by Enjoying His Gifts. And we're going to talk with him about, is it okay to really enjoy the good things that we have? So an ice cold glass of lemonade or the laughter of children, college football, or if you're like me, professional football. Is it okay to enjoy those fun things? Uh, And also, can we do that and also honor God? I think American Christians have this kind of tension where we feel like we're not supposed to really like the stuff that we have because somehow we're not uh, honoring the Lord. And so how do we enjoy these things? How do we hold them loosely and still give all of our glory to God and honor God? So Joe's going to really talk with me about that. Uh, Very good stuff. The second uh, person I'm going to talk to today is Joseph Williams, who's an associate counsel for the Center for Law and Justice, the ACLJ, which is a great organization, is one of the conservative law organizations that really works on issues of religious liberty. And so Joseph is going to uh, answer just some questions about religious liberty, why Christians should care about this. One of the questions I get all the time is, uh, as Christians, shouldn't we lay down our rights? Why do we care about our rights? Why do we care about liberty? And he's going to really talk with us about why it's a gospel issue. And an interesting thing about what we're going to talk about, he wrote a great column for uh, Canon and Culture uh, on why Christians should defend, for instance, Muslims who have their religious liberty uh, impinged, or Jewish people or other faiths, and why followers of Christ should defend those those groups, even though we don't share their beliefs, um, and we want to see them come to faith in Christ, we should defend the religious liberty. So I encourage you to listen to both of those today on this podcast. But before we do, I want to tell you again about our leadership summit that we're having March 26th and 27th here in Nashville. Uh, and the topic this year is the gospel and racial reconciliation. We feel this is a very, very important issue, You know how to interact and how to think through racial reconciliation in our culture and in our churches. We have some great guests, along with uh, Russell Moore, who's our president, of course. We're going to have uh, Tony Evans, who's a popular radio pastor and uh, pastor in, in Dallas-Fort Worth area, and a very great gifted speaker. John Perkins, who's a civil rights hero, Trip Lee, Tabidi Anyawale, and many, many others are going to join us. And so I've been told that we have a coupon code that can get you a 15% discount for listeners of this podcast. And so if you go to my website, to the podcast page, and you click on the link for the conference, and when you register, if you put Way Home, uh, that's Way Home, uh, into the um, the conference page there, you can get a 15% discount. But for now, let's start listening to um, my conversation with my friend Joe Rigney. So I'm here with my friend Joe Rigney, the Assistant Professor of Theology and Christian Worldview at Bethlehem College and Seminary. Uh, He's a well-read author and writer. His work appears in a lot of different places. And I'm here to talk about his new book called uh, Things of Earth, Treasuring God by Enjoying His Gifts. Welcome to the podcast, Joe. Thanks, man. Good to to be with you. So before we talk about your your excellent book, I have to mention that you're an Aggie. You're from Texas A&M. And uh, my colleague, Philip Bethencourt is an Aggie. So obviously you're already in our good graces here at the ERLC. Yeah, guilty as charged. I am I am one of those Aggies. 
Yes. So I want to talk about your book. This is a very intriguing book and a little bit, I want to say countercultural to the sort of evangelical. I would guess most evangelicals kind of have a tense relationship with the things of this earth. So we're taught and told that we need to hold them loosely, uh, that we don't need to live for the things of the earth. All that matters is what uh, we do for Christ. I remember when I was a kid growing up, we would say those things, uh, only what's done for Christ will last. So explain the premise behind your book and, and what you're trying to tell us. Yeah, so I think the first thing to say is that all of that stuff that you just said is more or less right, um, provided that we push it in the right directions. And I think in, in the book, that's that's kind of what my, my aim is, because all that stuff that you said uh, is exactly the kind of environment that I've been in since I was at least in in college, and uh, where uh, God-centeredness, Christ-centeredness, everything's about Jesus, everything's about God, was embraced because it's true. And then there was kind of this tension that was just kind of hung in the air about, okay, then what am I supposed to do with all these other things that aren't Jesus, uh, but that I enjoy? So I'm, if I'm supposed to love God, if I'm, if I'm a, a, you know, I'm here in Bethlehem College Seminary, John Piper's our chancellor, so I've been in the God is most glorified and we are most satisfied world for now about 10 years, mm-hmm. and years before that, just, just reading books. And, and so there's that tension um, of, well, I, I want to be most satisfied in God, but I have to admit that I am somewhat satisfied uh, in my food and my wife and, and my hobbies and all of this kind of stuff. And I, didn't, I haven't felt like there had been a, a real uh, detailed treatment of how we ought to, as God-centered people, engage with those things that aren't God. So that's kind of, that was where the book kind of came from. And, uh, and it's been a really interesting uh, kind of trajectory over the years, wrestling with, you know, you got Piper, then you got Jonathan Edwards, you got C.S. Lewis, uh, Doug Wilson. Those are kind of the four, I'd say, mm-hmm. main uh, rivers that run down to water this garden. Um, those are the guys. And through them, I think they've helped me to see things in the Bible. And then I've tried to pull them together for others. Yeah, it would seem that it's especially a, a difficult tension for American Christians because we we live in a, in a land of prosperity. Most of us, if not all of us, live better than most of the rest of the world lives. And so, you know, we have nice things, but then we feel kind of guilty because most of the rest of the world doesn't. We, we, we should be giving these things away. And so can you explain how we can do both of those things, perhaps? How we can enjoy the good gifts that God has given us and yet also be generous? Yeah. Well, I think that the, the first thing to say is um, the, the guilt is this uh, guilt's a terrible motivator. I, I've mm-hmm. found in my life that feeling guilty because I'm a, an American has never, I don't think, produced much in the way of good for others, um, because God made me an American. He, mm-hmm. he put me here. You know, he sets he sets where he puts where we're born. He sets the times and allotments for all peoples. Um, all of the things that I had growing up, I grew up in West Texas and had all kinds of blessings lavished on two parents who loved me, took me to church, mm-hmm. got me the gospel, uh, you know, bought me my first car when I was 16. It was an old, you know, ratty car, but nevertheless, it had, it was four wheels and it moved, I, you know, education, the whole deal. I've just been lavished my whole life. And all of that was God's idea. Mm. Right. So, so God in his wisdom thought that's, that's what I'm going to give to this person. And he's decided in his wisdom not to give it to others. And I don't, I don't pretend to fathom why or how. That's not, that's above my pay grade. But the question is, having received all those blessings, what should be my fundamental response? And I think I, for a while it was kind of a guilt, at least a low grade guilt in the back of my mind. 
I, that would erupt in real guilt. But but the reality is is that the Bible says give thanks always and for everything. Mm-hmm. Well, know, give thanks in all circumstances. So receive all of these gifts with a with a glad and grateful heart. That's the first response I think we should make to the blessings. And then then the issue is what does that do? And what I've found is that when I begin to recognize that I don't deserve any of this stuff. And yet that God is, is intent on lavishing goodness on me the way that, you know, the sky lavishes snow on Minnesota in January. When, when that hit, hits home, all of a sudden it, it does something in my heart that says, I, I want to be like that. I want to be with, as generous with others as he has been uh, with me. I, I want to receive with an open hand so that I can then turn around and give with an open hand. And so that, that I think, is the real deep connection with um, with generosity is that when we become grateful receivers, then we're free to become radical, generous givers. And isn't there a sense where Christians can almost become Gnostics almost in the sense where, you know, we're nothing, you know, we don't appreciate anything that we have. It's all, you know, everything's spiritualized. I mean, and can't that happen? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is, Lewis has been really helpful for me in this. Is he says, you know, uh, Christian self-denial is a very different animal than kind of pagan self-denial, where, mm. or, you know, what we want, Buddhist self-denial, where it's the, it's the physical stuff itself which is the problem, and we want to escape from it. And Christian self-denial is the sort of thing that says, all of this is good, and I'm going to temporarily give it up, say, in fasting, or I'm going to, tempora- mm. or I'm going to give it up, uh, sell it all, but I'm giving it up because it's a good thing, not because I think it's a bad thing that I shouldn't have, but I'm going to go without because there's something better that I want or that I want to do. And so all Christian self-denial must have at, it, at the forefront the goodness of the thing given up. That's why Jesus can say, on the one hand, no one who's left fathers or mothers or sisters or husbands or wives or houses will not receive back fathers and mothers and sisters and husbands and wives and houses. Like, it's, it's when we give things up for God, you know, Lewis has this great quote where he says, God never um, fails to give back with the right hand what he has taken away with the left. Like, mm-hmm. we can't give up things without him giving us back some, either that thing or better. Mm-hmm. And that may be now or it may be in the age to come, but the point is is that whatever it is that we're giving up is a good thing, and we ought to keep that at the forefront of our mind as we seek to be generous. Yeah, and how do we enjoy our gifts on the one hand without guilt, like you said, where we say, this is something good God has given me, I'm going to hold it loosely, but I'm going to enjoy it. Uh, on the other hand, how do we how do we avoid the sort of trap of a prosperity gospel thing where we start beginning to think, well, God's giving me this because I've been faithful or because I've been good. Yeah, so that that it's the because is what what matters. So someone who who enjoys, you know, who thinks that because I've, um, you know, my right hand and my right arm have, have, has gotten me this wealth, mm-hmm. um, is in the grip of idolatry, and God hates it, and He will drop a hammer on it in a hurry. I think that. Um, so I was very mindful in writing this book. I wanted to, on the one hand, attack the guilt, mm-hmm. and I wanted, on the other hand, to not fall into that prosperity gospel trap. And I think the trajectory is really where it matters. I, I want people to enjoy the good things God gives. And it's not even, um, I, mean, I, I talk about uh, wealth and things like that in there. That's that's a part of it. But I'm thinking about things as simple as a night out with your wife mm-hmm. or playing with your kids, things that ne- don't necessarily cost any money, but that we still feel guilty for because we're afraid of idolatry. What if I love them too much? Um, and so in that, I, I want, where's the trajectory? And it's, for me, let's enjoy these things God gives us because we want to have enlarged minds, enlarged hearts, enlarged souls, 
so that we can take more of him in. I, I didn't know, I mean, probably all of us who have become, uh, who've gotten married or who have, have close friends or who have had children have discovered that that gift, the gift of children, it's like, oh, that's what fatherly affection feels like. You mm-hmm. mean God feels something like that for me? Are you, are you kidding me? <laughs> and it was, it was actually this earthly thing, this thing of earth, that's what opened our minds experientially, our hearts experientially, to know more about God, and mm-hmm. that we wouldn't have been able to get there had the gift not come. Yeah, and I actually wonder, too, you know, when we overcorrect for prosperity gospel and we, we become almost Gnostic in that sense, I mean, one of the things I've, I've wrestled with, too, is when we, when we become like that, we're all, it's almost like, what are we saying about a Heavenly Father? I mean... Um, the Bible says that God has given us all things freely to enjoy. Like these things that yeah. he's given us are gifts from the Father. And I think of myself, you know, I like to give gifts to my kids. Yep. You know, imagine if I gave gifts to my kids and they just said, no, well, we're not, you know, we don't care about these gifts. We just care about you. We don't care about the gifts you give. I mean, that would kind of be insulting, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I mean, the Bible is full of, you know, he's the father of life. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the father of lights, or mm-hmm. he knows how to give good gifts to his children, or um, or the one you mentioned, he richly provides us with all things to enjoy, which ironically, this is, this is one of those realizations that I'd never made until I was in the middle of writing the book. He gives that, he, that verse about richly providing everything for enjoyment is given to the rich in this present age. As for the rich in this present age, don't set your hope on riches, that's mm-hmm. attack and prosperity gospel, but uh, set your hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Paul wants the rich to remember the reason you have that stuff is one for your enjoyment, but then he goes on in that passage to talk about there to be rich in good works, to be open-handed and generous. And so it's that, it's that whole package richly enjoy what God has richly provided, and then out of that open-handed receiving, be as generous with others as God has been with you. You freely receive, now freely give your time, your treasure, your talent, whatever you've got, um, use it for kingdom purposes, mm-hmm. um, because that's that's what God's up to, and so spread spread the wealth in that sense. It, it seems to me that this is something we really need to be teaching in our churches. Like Preachers really need to be preaching a holistic biblical view of how to think through our stuff and enjoying the world, uh, this this kind of theology, so that we're really equipping people for how to think this way so that they don't fall into one of the two traps uh, that we talked about. And also, if the second part of this, I guess, would be, so first, how do, we, how do pastors teach this to their congregations? And secondly, how do parents teach this to their children? Right. So um, everywhere you go in God's world, you're going to run into abuse of God's gifts. Like that's that's what it means to be a sinner on this side of Eden. Is um, and, and if you read it, so Romans one, it was kind of a is a paradigm passage in that sense. And I treat it a couple of times in the book. But in in that in that uh, chapter on sin, um, Paul tells us that the visible world makes the invisible God known. Mm-hmm. Right, invisible attributes are made known. Invisible things. That's how we know all of this stuff is communicating about God. But everywhere you go, you run into two fundamental problems. They don't honor him as God, and they don't give thanks. And those are the two deals right there. It's, it's idolatry and it's ingratitude. And if you think about this discussion, that's kind of the twin dangers that we're always trying to navigate. On the one hand, I don't want um, to turn gifts into gods. I don't want to make idols. I don't want to fail to honor God. But in my zeal to avoid idolatry, I also don't want to be ungrateful. 
and refuse to be a, a receiver. You know, God's giving mm-hmm. me gifts, and I'm saying, oh, no, I only want you. And so I think teaching on this, everywhere you go, you run into this problem. And so for me, I think it's essential to do some deep thinking about how we motivate for generosity, how we talk about the goodness of creation. How, if we Do we really get why God made a material world, a finite world, a temporal mm-hmm. world, why he made us with bodies? He didn't make us to be angels. And if we really drill into those, so I spend about five chapters kind of drilling deep into theology before getting to the practical outworthings and how it looks in our lives, because I think that's where the answer comes. It comes from reflections on the Trinity. It comes from reflections on uh, Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, it comes from reflecting on how sin disrupts that goodness, but then the gospel restores it. Those are That's where the answer is. And as pastors and teachers, we and parents, we need to be attuned to those deep theological truths and see how that can work itself out in our daily lives. Well, Joe Rigney, uh, professor of theology, assistant professor of theology and Christian worldview at Bethlehem College and Seminary, author of this brand new book on how to enjoy and and love the things that, that God has given us. Do get this book. We'll have a link uh, on my website under the show notes that you can get. And I really encourage you to read this. Joe, thanks for joining us today. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me. Well, that was a great conversation with Joe Rigney on the things of this earth, treasuring God by enjoying his gifts. Really appreciate Joe's perspective there. And I encourage you to go to podcast page and uh, click on the show notes and find out more information about getting this book. And now our conversation with Joseph Williams from the American Center for Law and Justice. Joseph, thanks for joining me. It's good to be here, Dan. Thanks for having me today. So, Joseph, I want to talk to you about a, a couple different things, some legal stuff and, and Supreme Court cases and things. But I, before I do that, I just want to kind of tell the audience, you know, explain a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a lawyer and to kind of love the, this kind of work and how that kind of fits with your Christian faith. Yeah. So I I consider myself, you know, to, to quote Lou Gehrig, one of the luckiest men on the face of the planet because I, I was blessed enough. Um, to have God open up the doors at the right moment, at the right time, at the right places, to be doing religious liberty law, uh, standing up for First Amendment issues, uh, for not only you know people and citizens and organizations here in the United States, but also a broader view of religious liberty. Um, the ACLJ does a lot of work with uh, international religious freedom. Uh, advocating for mm-hmm. uh, the family of Pastor Saeed, for example. And so I just love the work we do. Um, we do a lot of litigation, uh, but we also do a lot of advocacy and education. And it's just an amazing opportunity to do constitutional law in a way in which it stands up for a vibrant free marketplace of ideas uh, that allows all beliefs and people of all faiths to be able um, to enter the public square and have their faith affect them beyond worship on Sundays or whatever their day of worship is. Um, and and so I, I consider it a privilege and an honor to be able to do that work. I want to ask you a little bit about that because I think Christians are now just kind of thinking through religious liberty. And, you know, I've heard from a lot of people, well-meaning evangelicals, who might say something like, why should Christians invest a lot of time trying to fight and protect religious liberty? You know, aren't we supposed to be willing to be martyrs? And, we, you know, we don't fight for our rights. We laid those down when we became Christians. Can you answer that, that, that kind of question? 
I mean, that, that is an excellent question, and it is, it is a criticism that is lobbed against anyone involved in this work, and there's a lot of great public servants and people of faith um, working in all sorts of organizations across the country. I think what that misses is that if, if Christians and people of other faiths truly want their faith to impact everything they do, um, which Christianity and Christ and what he did on the cross definitely affects every part of our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, it should affect you know, how we live day to day, how we conduct ourselves professionally, personally, how we vote. Um, it doesn't mean we place politics above the cross, but it does mean the cross should impact how we advocate in the legal sphere, in the political sphere, in the cultural sphere, um, how we engage with culture. And so what our work does is it's not saying, hey, we are trying to place um, Christianity in, in a sense in which we are trying to oppress other faiths, but we're simply saying we are advocating so that in the public square, Christians will be able to talk about the redeeming work of the blood of Jesus Christ and his resurrection and overcoming death. And so Christians can't be told, no, 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 you need to leave that inside mm-hmm. your churches. Um, you need to in- leave that on Sunday mornings. Uh, you can't bring that into the workplace. You can't bring that to the sidewalks outside abortion clinics. Mm-hmm. You can't bring that uh, to public parks to have events and rallies where you are talking about your faith and sharing it with other people. That's the importance of the work we do. If a nation, uh, America or otherwise, is not a true free marketplace of ideas, if our college campuses are stamping out and oppressing religious groups and and not allowing Christian groups or any groups of any faith to have access to student buildings and you know student organization fairs and things like that, then all of a sudden it becomes it doesn't mean that the gospel will not flourish and that God still will not continue his work. But what it does mean is that it's harder. And I and we truly believe, I truly believe that God is using Christian attorneys, people of faith, to keep those doors open for the gospel. And it's and it's a wonderful opportunity to show what Dr. Moore always talks about with convictional kindness. Mm-hmm. Um it it means we are standing up and standing strong, um, but we're doing so with the love of Christ and, and with the knowledge that we we have the truth. And aren't you um, in a sense, Joseph, you know, you're clearing the way so that pastors and preachers and churches can do the work God's called them to do. I mean, it's very similar, I think, to other ways that people apply their gifts to help the church grow and thrive. I mean, I think yeah. people don't understand um, all the time that people who fight for religious liberty and kind of do the trench work and the and the unpopular work of you know, filing lawsuits and kind of speaking in the public square, the things that are, you know, Christians kind of get squeamish about. We're creating space so that people who do want to just just preach the gospel can actually do that. So I think the two work together, and it's it's interesting. We we don't just believe in religious liberty for Christians, but religious liberty f- for all, right? And and I wanted to specifically ask about this particular Supreme Court case that recently came down, Holt versus Hobbs, where Christian attorneys actually defended a Muslim uh, prisoner. Right? Can you explain a little bit about that case? Correct, yes. So Holt v. Hobbs was actually a case, and um, Gregory Holt in that case was represented by the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, who does excellent work, and they are known for also representing the Green family 
in the Hobby Lobby case from last year, a huge case, very controversial, in which a majority of the Supreme Court stood up for religious freedom. So in Holt v. Hobbs, we have the the statute at issue in the Hobby Lobby case was a statute called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, mm-hmm. and that is a very important law. There are various states still this year in legislative sessions um, debating uh, and voting on whether states should adopt Religious Freedom Restoration Acts for state-level government. Um, but there is a similar law that was at the core of Holt v. Hobbs, which was basically a um, religious protection for inmates in prisons to ensure that they are they still have religious protection there and they can still practice their faith and that the government cannot be oppressive in their regulations in pressing them exhibiting and living out their Christian faith, even though they are behind bars and even though they're incarcerated. And in this case, Mr. Holt simply wanted to grow a beard less than an inch. The prison system said there was a compelling governmental interest in prison safety, that he could hide things in there. But the Supreme Court unanimously held last week that uh, a 9-0 vote that his religious freedom was being infringed upon. Mm-hmm. And so what we have here is an organization, the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, which there are many in the media and many pundits would say, oh, this is an organization that stood up for the Green family, but what about non-Christians? Do they argue for religious liberty for them too? And we have a classic case here that says yes. That in fact, when the government is using its regulatory authority and is being oppressive, and oppressing minority groups who may hold a minority viewpoint, but they are saying and concocting absurd justifications for infringing upon religious liberty, which all these statutes do. They're not, you know, there are a lot of lies about them mm-hmm. um, that are spread saying, oh, it provides the freedom to discriminate. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not true at all. Um, what they do is they say that the government, and this is, this is the fundamental basis here, and nine members of the Supreme Court agreed on this as it applied to um, Gregory Holt last week, trying to grow a beard in conjunction with his Muslim mm-hmm. faith. They said, for the government to burden religious liberty, they have to show two things. They have to show they have a compelling governmental interest, whether it's you know stopping racial discrimination, for example. That's a compelling governmental interest. They have to show that, and they have to show that if they have a way to achieve that interest without burdening religion, then they have to use that, which in the legal world we call the least restrictive means. Mm-hmm. Um, if, they, if they have a way to achieve that interest without burdening religious faith, they have to do that. That's mm-hmm. pure and simple what we're talking about here. And last week, thankfully, the Beckett Fund stood up for Mr. Holt against you know the regulatory power of government bureaucracy, and all nine Supreme Court justices agreed with that, that this was a gentleman who could grow a beard because the prisons allowed gentlemen with skin sensitivity or skin disease or whatever to grow beards so that they wouldn't have to shave. And that showed that they could allow Mr. Holt mm-hmm. to also grow a beard. So. I, I want to follow up on this because I think this is a really important thing for Christians to think through. In fact, I'm going to point people on my blog in the show notes to your canon and culture article uh, applying the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in different scenarios, which is a really, really helpful piece that explains kind of you know, why religious liturgy is important and how this act really applies. But I want to dig in a little bit on 
you know, I think most Christians now would say, we're glad we won the Hobby Lobby case. We're glad we're feeling as Christians, especially those of us who believe in a biblical sexual ethic, that our religious freedom could be imperiled by the uh, sexual revolution and kind of uh, that those changes uh, in our culture. But I think it's a little bit more complicated for Christians when they think that think through having to defend people of other faiths and their right, uh, you know, their religious liberty. Um, but can you explain a little bit about why Christians should be zealous in fighting for the religious liberty of others, not just for Christians? Yeah, I like um, so. So I like something, and I actually quote him in that Canon and Culture article. Um, Doctor Russell Moore says that, and I love this: that religious liberty is an image of God issue. Mm-hmm. It's not a who has the most votes issue, mm-hmm. um, and that means we should be standing up for people of any faith who are having their First Amendment rights infringed upon by the government. A colleague of mine, David French, wrote an excellent article about Holt v. Hobbs um, for National Review last week, and he kind of raised this point of, you know, it was titled, Why We Should All Be Glad a Muslim Man Just Won His Religious Liberty Case mm-hmm. at the Supreme Court. And, and he goes into this, and, and he talks extensively about if 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 we are not standing up against government agencies who are using just who are just taking increasingly extreme stances in the court system, and there's one case um, in which the Supreme Court unanimously upheld what is called the ministerial exception, which means faith organizations and churches can they have full deference from the government and from the law in order to hire and fire their pastors, mm-hmm. their pastors who are shepherding their flock. And so from employment law, there's that ministerial exception. And again, that's, that was a unanimous Supreme Court defense. But what did the government argue in that case? The government argued that a ministerial exception should not and does not exist under the First Amendment. And, and so if we are not standing up for all people of faith, and all faith traditions to be able to have their ministerial exception, then it's easy to say, oh, Christians shouldn't worry about that. We'll be okay. But what if a time comes, which, again, Dr. Morris talked about, that perhaps we're not living in a time period in which we have a moral majority in this nation, but what if we're now a missional minority mm-hmm. and we don't have the votes anymore? Mm-hmm. And the majority wants to say, you know what, maybe churches who disagree with us when it comes to sexual ethics and what marriage is and what, what families should be, maybe they shouldn't be tax exempt anymore, mm-hmm. even though they are doing great work in their community, helping the homeless, helping the poor, feeding the hungry, taking the oppressed and the widows and the orphans under their wings. But, but we're, we're gonna not going to allow them to do that anymore. Um, maybe faith-based institutions aren't allowed to have adoption clinics anymore mm-hmm. because of their view on family. And, and these are real issues. These aren't some sort of hypothetical slippery slopes. Mm-hmm. These, are, these are battles that have already been fought in the courts and in the political arenas in various states in our union over the last decade. Well, we, um, we had a case here, uh, you know, a fight here in Tennessee, um, as you recall, about there was a, a mosque that was uh, going to be built in Murfreesboro, and there was some concerned Christians that tried to, you know, leverage the the state to try to get it to shut down. And, um, 
you know, and I've always looked at those things, and I think Dr. Moore has, and and, and, and folks like you to say, you know, that's kind of a a dangerous thing for Christians to do because the same state that can shut down a mosque can shut down the building of a church, right? And so we really need to be, you know, guarding and, and fighting for the religious liberty of not just Christians, but of, of Muslims, right? Correct. Yes. And, and I mean, this, this comes to a place of, are, are we going to say it's okay for the government mm-hmm. and for communities to have a lot of power to shut down certain institutions of faith. Mm -hmm. Because if they have that power, then that means that power can be turned upon us at any given point in time. And and that's why the work we do is so important, and that's why Christians should care about these issues. And that's why Christians should care about the Muslim prisoner in Arkansas who went before the Supreme Court last week. Uh, Because it's, it's much bigger than that. If we're going to pretend like the Hobby Lobby Supreme Court case is a huge win, and it mo- and it undoubtedly is. Then Holt v. Hobbs is just as important because it's showing mm. the government can't burden religious faith and expression, and that burden looks anyway. And I know you know the ERLC mm-hmm. was very involved in um, the case of the few pastors in Houston who mm-hmm. had their sermons and text messages subpoenaed. Mm-hmm. That's another case of you know. We need to be standing up, you know, if, if they were subpoenaing, you know, the sermons and text messages and notes of rabbis, I would hope Christians and, oh, yeah. and Christians should stand up for their rights just as much, because a government that's allowed, you said it very well, a government that's allowed to shut down a mosque is a government that inevitably will be allowed to shut down the church as well. Well, this is very good. I have one more question. I really like how you explained the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in your piece here. And one of the things I think is confusing for some Christians is that, you know, they, they don't realize, you know, is religious freedom kind of a blank check for anything? Can it be used to justify discrimination and other things? And you had a really good example in here of how the Religious Freedom Restoration Act is worded where... Sometimes the state does have a compelling interest, right? Um, Correct. Uh, there was a case, for instance, of a um, – well, I'll let you explain it, but of, of a parent that allowed their child to die because they didn't get treatment uh, because of their particular religious beliefs. Can you explain that a little bit? Correct, yes. So there, there's a case argued before the Tennessee Supreme Court last fall uh, in which a mother did not provide medical care to her child who eventually passed away. And Tennessee actually has very uh, flexible, deferential laws regarding people of faith with non-traditional beliefs about modern medicine. They actually give a lot of freedom and flexibility to families, and yet this woman was even outside of that, and Mm -hmm. and her child passed away. And so clearly child abuse Mm -hmm. um, categories of charges were brought against her, and she's challenging it on the basis of religious freedom. In that case, the government can say, look, our statutory scheme is very deferential to you, but you didn't even follow that. And we have a compelling governmental interest in stopping child abuse and stopping undue, unnecessary harm to children, to minors. Similarly, um, someone cannot claim that they do not uh, want to serve an African-American uh, at their restaurant on the basis of religious belief. Why? The government has a compelling governmental mm-hmm. interest in stopping racial discrimination. That's something we all agree on at this point. Right. And therefore, that is a false, bogus religious liberty claim that just so happens to go completely against 
the core foundation of what we believe, what Dr. Moore talks about when it comes to religious freedom, which this is an image of God issue. Mm-hmm. This, the same core freedoms that provide us religious liberty provide people of all races and ethnicities to have equal treatment before the law and before society. So that is, when it comes to religious freedom, we're often told, especially in this environment with very intense debates about um, sexuality. For example, in our culture, we're told, uh, like, you are using religious freedom as an excuse to discriminate. Um, And then, as if it's like a get-out-of-jail-free card. And that's just not how the legal regime is set up. That's not how the courts decide these cases. Again, they say, does the state have a compelling governmental interest to stop child abuse, to stop racial discrimination? Then, it, then you know, the state can burden right. what may be claimed to be religious freedom um, in that case. And so it, it's very cut and dry. And, and unfortunately, as many have said, facts are stubborn things. <laughs> And, and the way our religious liberty legal regime is set up is very fair. It's a balancing test. And it just asks, does the state have a compelling governmental interest to burden religion? And if so, are they doing it in a way that is least restrictive and being most respectful of um, religious communities? Well, th- thank you for explaining this, Joe. So I appreciate this, and and thanks for joining me. And I think these are very, very important issues that that uh, Christians should be uh, paying attention to. And uh, hopefully, they'll they'll go and read uh, your piece on canon culture and just keep watching. Uh, what is your Twitter handle? Uh, at J Joseph Williams. At J Joseph Williams. Follow him. Uh, we'll put a link to that as well on the blog. Uh, but thanks for joining us, Joseph. I appreciate it. Dan, thanks for having me on today, and uh, I hope it was helpful. And thank you uh, to you and Dr. Moore and everyone there at the ERLC doing the great work you all do. I really appreciate it. Well, I want to thank my friend Joseph Williams for coming on to this podcast and, and talking with us about religious liberty. Very important conversation, and I encourage you to go to uh, DanielDarling.com, my website, and clicking on the podcast page and find the link to his excellent canon and culture article on this. Also, if you want more information about Joe Rigney's uh, book, The Things of This Earth, Treasuring God by Enjoying His Gifts, we'll have a link there as well. And lastly, I want to remind you again about our conference, March 26th and 27th, uh, The Gospel and Racial Reconciliation. This is our second annual Leadership Summit. We really encourage you to be a part of this. This is a very important discussion. We have a discount for you if you're a listener of this podcast. Uh, If you go to my website, uh, you'll see uh, the show notes and you'll see a link to the conference. And when you go to the conference page, type in Way Home and you will get a 15% discount for that. But until next time, thank you for listening to the Way Home Podcast. You've been listening to the Way Home Podcast. For show notes, more information about Dan or the ERLC, please visit danieldarling.com. This episode has been brought to you by the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Thanks for listening.